Hello, I'm Maya Brown, and this is Stories from the Brink. This podcast is about giving voice to personal stories of overcoming challenges in life with grace and humor. Because stories bring us together, and together we all win. Today's episode is about a career-related, and for lack of a better way of putting it, spiritual challenge that Eric Weingartner, CEO of The Door, faced between March of 2020 and the present during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Door is responsible for approximately 11,000 disadvantaged young people in New York City, many of whom are undocumented, homeless, or runaways. Before his current role at The Door, Eric was managing director at the Robin Hood Foundation. Previous to that, he served as a policy advisor to mayors Bloomberg and Giuliani, and as the executive director of Teach for America New York. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a board member at The Door, and Eric is my dear friend. Eric, great to have you here. Awesome to be here, and true on all accounts. So it's really funny. I was looking at the calendar, and I realized we have a board meeting coming up tomorrow. And our board meeting in 2020 was on March 10th. So what was going through your mind on March 10th, 2020? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's the right question. I mean, I think the, the answer is what was going through my mind January 1st, February 1st, March 1st. Okay. And, you know, January 1st, I don't think anybody in the United States kind of knew what was totally coming. By February 1st, I think we had a decent inkling. By you know this better than anyone, the door is a scaled human services intervention for young adults 12 to 24. The vast majority of 11,000 kids that we see a year, we see in person um, and come to the door with a range of things going on that put them at risk. It could be a healthcare issue, it could be something about the labor market, it could be about housing, it could be about their status as they're an immigrant. And we are fundamentally a direct services organization thriving on having a thousand kids in our building that's headquartered at Broom Street and Sixth Avenue in Soho in New York every day. And so by Feb 1, the team and I were like, huh, if we can't exercise our density and have a lot of kids in the building every day doing the things that we do that we know are life-saving, what are we going to do? Our model is predicated on being with kids and having our staff be in the building. And we're not a tech company, and we don't do healthcare online, and we hadn't traditionally done classroom learning online. I think one of the things that ran through my head was our school. Uh, Maya, as you know, the door runs a charter high school for young adults who are vulnerably housed and in foster care. We had an online learning platform, and we started to think about what are the ramifications of going to school online? What does that mean for kids that are food insecure that count on having lunch with us every day? or breakfast. So by March 10th, though, Maya, just in terms of just chronology, at that point, we knew we were going fully remote. And I think we went remote two or three days later. later. I think on March 13th, we went fully remote and then started just the biggest fire drill I think I've ever been through in my professional career about thinking, how do we keep track of a diverse set of folks? How do we translate everything that we do to some hopefully good substitute online? How do we raise a lot of relief money to go after unexpected costs around operation? How do we move a ton of technology into the hands of families? How do we do that for kids that are vulnerably housed or homeless? 
And so what became a planning exercise became a fire drill from pretty much the middle of March till May 1, where we started to see what it was going to be and what a new normal would be. And you saw us do that. But by March 10th, we knew it was coming. What I really distinctly remember about that evening is that was the moment when I under, fully understood the magnitude of what was coming. I mean, I yeah. knew we all have friends all around the world and had heard about what was happening in China. We knew potentially something was coming. But to sit in that board meeting and to actually have to contemplate, how are we going to take care of these kids in the middle of this, what's about to happen? Yeah. I remember the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. I was, I thought, whoa, how are we going to do this? Yeah. But luckily, you guys were way ahead and already had a plan. So what did you do? How did you prioritize what needed to be done? Because you guys, the door... For people who don't know about the door, the door does a whole bunch of different things for these kids, right? Like what kind of things? So the door's model is very unique for a not-for-profit. Um, the most striking difference is, is that we combine seven or eight big human services silos into one well-integrated not-for-profit in one building. So we sit um, in a 70,000-foot space and that includes primary care, mental health care, family planning, services and programs for kids that are homeless, supportive housing, which is housing for, for chronically homeless young adults. We run food programs all day, arts programs all day. We have $8 million in career and ed money, which is connecting kids to high school equivalency programs, jobs and training. We run an immigration law firm with 25 lawyers. And we run a charter high school for 300 to 320 vulnerably housed and kids in foster care, all in one building, all totally integrated. So Maya, the answer to the question is we did it by silo, right? Um, and we've done some of it well, some of it kind of in the middle, and some of it we haven't been able to translate. I'll start with the, the thing that's the most challenging. At the door, we served kids food every day, all day long. And in the evening, we would do dinner for anybody who was in the building. And that would be anywhere from 85 to 185 dinners. Once there was no opportunity to have depth around congregate programming, that meal program stopped because we couldn't put staff and young adults in a room together in the way that we had what was essentially family meal at the door every night. So we started, we started a pantry, which is not great for young adults who are at risk because the 17-year-olds that were coming to us, they don't have apartments the same way as adults do that go to a food pantry. So that was fledgling. We, did, we started to do boxed lunches and boxed dinners, but kids didn't come to the door and didn't know us that way, so the numbers were way down. Even for the whole year, Maya, we've been struggling to figure out how do we replicate and keep consistent around food delivery the way that we did previously. And for us, it's never been the same. The same is true for arts. You know, some kids come to the door just to be part of a community and to do arts programming, which could be dance or fine art or music, all taught by instructors at the door, all in a way that is very hard to replicate online. And we do all of it online, every ounce of it, but it's been harder. The flip side is mental health, where the transition was 
frankly, um, not as hard. The big issue was technology. And in almost every case, my the, the technology question was the big one. How do you make sure that kids who don't have access to broadband or don't have access to a machine that they can get online and do what we're doing now, how do you keep people connected? But if, we, if they had technology, then we could do it. So if you're in a group therapy program, if you're an individual therapy program, online works pretty well for talk therapy or for group therapy. And so our numbers for mental health beginning in April stabilized and we actually had a higher rate of participation in mental health programming since COVID hit than we did previously because we didn't have no-shows the same way. Because as you know, Maya, the door traps kids from all five boroughs. And if you have technology, it doesn't matter whether or not you're in the Bronx and you're coming down to Manhattan, you just get online and you can do it. So that's an example of one case where from a volume perspective, we actually didn't have a drop-off, which was great. What about kids who didn't have technology? What did you do to bridge that gap? How did you get technology to them? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that, was, that was a big part of the first three, four months here. The philanthropies and government in New York were great from the beginning. There was this floodgates went open and we could ask our big philanthropic partners, places like Robin Hood and Tiger and JP Morgan for money to be helpful. And what we predominantly asked for, probably more than half of the money that we got, we spent on technology and we moved devices and broadband into the hands of our kids. So our school, we bought a laptop for every kid who didn't have one. And then we went literally program by program and tried to figure out where we would allocate a machine or broadband to kids to keep them connected, a high school equivalency program. A young adult who was in an immigration case with one of our lawyers, we made sure that they had technology and we kept the cases going. Maya, not so dissimilar from mental health, immigration had about the same experience. We didn't really lose cases. We kept the cases going. Our lawyers all worked from home. Everybody on the staff worked from home, at least in the beginning. And we were able to maintain the caseload because we moved technology into their hands. And then working with the courts and things became a very interesting maze because things weren't in, in person, but then started this new normal. And where, just as I was sort of saying, the arts and food were very hard, hard to replicate, immigration law cases and mental health cases, example, were actually pretty good. And, and every single piece of what the door does had some story that was like that, where we were either fledgling or we really kept it going. Um, not so much was in the middle. Hmm. Do you think that there are things that the door learned to do because of COVID that are going to benefit it in the mid to long term? I really do. I mean, I really do. I mean, I, I think most of it is in the technology side. There is no reason that we should be asking kids to exclusively participate in person when we can create a valuable experience for kids remotely. You can take our school as an example. Our school is Broom Street Academy. It's um, a subsidiary of the door. It's a charter school that um, is uh, licensed by the State University of New York under the auspices of the Board of Regents of New York State. Mm -hmm. And we are the only charter high school in New York State that prioritizes admissions for kids that are vulnerably housed or in foster care. So we serve the most at-risk kids. We attract a population of ninth graders who come to us 
who are overage and undercredited, meaning that they're generally behind and need the support of the doors model to do well. So here you have this cohort of kids that need to be in the building, both for academics and mental health support and food and all the programs that the door does. And now they're all locked out of the building. How do you recreate that? So we, we did our best to do it online and we've spent the entire year, this calendar year, excuse me, this school year, working with kids remotely. We are actually welcoming kids back into the building in April, which is great. But Maya, your question was really like, what do you keep? And so it's an example. We cannot, with kids that need extra support academically, we cannot pretend like the school day is nine to three. And so we need to use technology to do remedial and enrichment support academically for kids, frankly, all year long and in the summer. And so as an example, we will continue to do that. We'll do summer school, both in person and remotely. We'll do after school work with kids and families um, remotely. And we'll have to do that. There's no, there's no way that we'll ever be able to stop because we, we inherit a cohort of kids that are behind the eight ball in terms of where they are academically from the start. And so this is just an, another opportunity to have a real reach with remedial and enrichment support using technologies, kids don't have to be in the building. And it just increases our bandwidth. That's great. Yeah, because like you said, kids are coming from all the different boroughs. Some of them, some of them live pretty far away. So if they can do, especially, you know, additional tutoring um, or remedial study work that they're going to be doing more on an individual basis online, that's probably a big benefit to them. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, um, Another example is mental health. Why would we ever pivot exclusively to have folks do things in person? Look, at the same time, you know, we're having this conversation uh, on March 8th. If you believe what comes out of Washington, there's reason to think that the vast majority of adults will have the opportunity to be inoculated, you know, by the summer. And, you know, one of the things about this work that's been incredibly hard is that all of our collective mind and our heart share is on our young adults and people who are poor um, and people who are at risk have done worse under COVID in every category than people who are more affluent. But at the same time, our staff have been a really tricky, been in a really tricky position because they are, they have been certainly before uh, our staff was eligible to be inoculated, they're very worried about their own health and what happens to that they get sick and what happens as they take care of their parents or their kids. And so the mission of the door is to serve at-risk young adults and everybody who works at the door shares that view. That's why you come to work at the door. Nobody works at the door because they're not mission driven, but at the same time, nobody wanted to be sick. And so we lost staff members to COVID we had staff who died. We I'm have, so sorry. We have kids who have died. Um, Terrible. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And some of the work that the door does, there is no substitute to doing it online. So we, we, we support 100 young adults who are chronically homeless in housing programs. You can't support kids in person via the computer. So no. all of those kids had staff from the door on site the entire year. And we paid extra to make sure that folks were okay. We used 
a variety of means of transportation to keep people safe, whether they went back and forth to their, their jobs. But there was no online substitute to supporting kids in person. What do you mean by supporting kids in person? Like what kind of things happen? So the kids that, the young adults that we support in um, supportive housing, they are chronically homeless, they live in an apartment, and they have high needs, predominantly mental health needs, where staff are on site in their housing facility supporting them to make sure that they stay stable. And that's not, that's, not a, that's not a Zoom call. No. That's staff who are on site who help if, if any of our clients have a medical issue, have an emotional right. issue, have a food insecurity issue, if there's fights between clients. I mean, it's, it's a tough population that needs a lot of support. Right. And it's not about a virtual babysitter. It's on-site no. support. You know, my, you know that one of the biggest things that, that the door does well is that we're a unique family planning center, predominantly for women, but also for men too, who come to the door for sexual, for sexual health, for family planning. Some of that work you can't do online. And so it's those scenarios that we've been pulling our hair out about figuring out well, what are the repercussions of not having access to kids because we can't have them in the building. It's food, can't draw blood online, can't give somebody a blood test online, you can't do a physical exam online. So those things have been very, very hard. And it's also the things that in person that we've opened up the fastest. So starting July 1, so I guess three months after the pandemic started, we opened back up in limited cases um, because we wanted to make sure that the kids that are the most vulnerable had the opportunity to come in. And that has been very dicey for our staff about juggling this question about who's coming in, who's not coming in, who's most at risk. Uh, you know, we have staff who live with people with chronic conditions. We have staff with chronic conditions. And then it creates an equity question about who's actually doing the in-person. It's complicated. So just to change gears a tiny bit. So you're in the middle of this set of situations, very complicated interactions between different groups of people trying to balance all this. You also have a family of your own. How are you managing on a day-to-day basis during March to say July? How did you manage to not only keep going, but to jump through every single hoop sent your way? Uh, I don't know. I think it's 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 this um, it's this question of like adrenaline and mission kind of coming together. I don't think of running the door like running a business, but it is a big business to run, and it's complex. And there are lots of things behind the scenes that are complicated in terms of how we run our business. Would our contracts still hold? Would we be able to financially keep people in positions? Would we have to lay off staff? So everything about operations just went from black to white or white to black. I mean, it just it changed shape. And I guess my the simple answer is that I didn't have much choice. And we, I think, collectively as a team feel just immense pressure to do well by our young adults because we are such an important institution in New York City. And so it was crunch time. And it's kind of like, I think, leaders step up when it's hard. Um, it's a lot easier to to lead when things are going swimmingly. Um, and everything about COVID was unknown. 
So some of it was about communication, just constantly being in touch with everybody in our community about what's happening. And you know, this as a board member at the door, I started doing these big, dense emails every Friday where I told the board every single thing we were doing, good, bad, and in, in between, because hiding the bad news under COVID made no sense. Everybody knows the whole world was chaotic. So we shared all of it. And that was with our staff, with our young people, and everybody who helps to keep the door running. And we were super aggressive about changing our model and pushing ahead to be able to stay relevant for kids, even though everything we were doing was sort of different from the way that we had structured things. Um, I don't think that I felt exhausted until the summer when it started to have a degree of new normalcy that we were in this new way of running the door. And then it sort of, I never hit a wall, but I realized how exhausted I was, how exhausted I was. And I wasn't really as present for my family as they needed me to be, but they also sort of kind of realized that I had to do this for a period of time and still am to some extent. It's a little bit different now than it was the first six months of the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, you know, in my family, just like in any family, there are people in my family that needed to avoid COVID more than others. Um, we all needed to avoid COVID, but, you know, I have folks in my family that have underlying conditions that didn't need to get it. So I think we were particularly careful, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it was just that I needed to be healthy. Like I couldn't get, I, I needed to stay healthy to be able to do my work. And, right. you know, more than anywhere else in the country, New York got crushed first. And so there were big swaths of the country that were just staring at New York saying, this is a New York thing. This is an LA thing. This is a San Francisco thing. And I mean, I think the first cluster was in Seattle, but New York was devastated by far the hardest. So our whole city was in it. And not only that, even within New York, the populations that were most impacted kind of all intersected within the population of the door. That's right. You saw people with means leave New York, right? Yeah. You know, it's like... Everyone's going out to the Hamptons. The door kids are not going to the Hamptons. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, the Hamptons grocery stores have never done so much business in April in their life. True. And it's true. I mean, you know, it, it, there were ghosts. There were people with people with that who had the opportunity to work remotely and leave the city and get out of a degree of density did it. And everybody else was left. Right. And so if you look at, you know, the studies that will come out, we don't even, I mean, we should do them, but the studies that will come out a year, two years, three years from now will show that people who are vulnerably housed, people who are low in income, immigrants, communities of color will have done the worst in the labor market, will have mm -hmm. done the worst in school, will yeah. have had the comorbidities get exacerbated. And it's the same story. It's poverty is a, is a, is a really, really tough story. And COVID disproportionately hurt our kids. So I, my, I think the answer to your good question is we locked in and we just faced it head on. And we just, we just, we just, we didn't back down and we just, You're just a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker. You got to get through it, right? Yeah. You got to get through it. And, That's great. Um, but there was nothing like it, right? We couldn't compare it to anything. And I think our staff was heroic. Yeah. You guys were all great. Is there, is there like a one, a story of a kid that you can remember from this time that you could share with us a little bit? Like what, what kind of things 
How has it been for them? I know it's been terrible. I think there, I think there are a lot of stories. The first one I'd say there was a, there was a young woman who was a senior at Broom Street Academy, who was our high school, who was college bound. And um, not all of our high school kids are college bound. She, but a high percentage are. A high percentage. A high percentage are. Mm-hmm. And she was competitive for a full ride to a very competitive school. And, but she had a lot to do through her senior year to get it done. And our community of teachers and, and social workers got around her. They, they made sure that all of her college application stuff was, was, was working. And she pivoted quickly to online. She needed a free laptop that she had mm-hmm. to share with her siblings because they had none. So you How have many these, siblings? I think three. Uh, so there's four people on a laptop. She was using crazy hours, Maya, middle of the mm-hmm. night to keep her stuff going. And she graduated valedictorian, full ride to Vassar. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And and there was a lot of that, right? You know, yeah. folks who were in the middle of uh, a training program that needed to get a certificate that ended up getting the certificate and are now placed as EMTs doing the work of helping people during COVID. That's amazing. And then there were really sad stories too. Um, one particular story about a young adult who had really significant health um, challenges, including mental health challenges, who got really, really sick. And it was because he was disconnected and he was living in shelter. And, and that, that happened more than we care to, to know. I don't think we totally know the full impact of everybody because the doors it has no punitive sort of side to it. We just meet kids where they are, no matter where they are but it's not compulsory that they have to be with us all the time. So we've lost kids. And, you know, of the things that I'm the most worried about is the disconnection from healthcare and the disconnection from jobs, particularly on the mental health side. We're worried that kids just dropped out. And we know that, you know, girls that have used us, who've gotten contraception from us that haven't had things renewed. um, We worry about their sexual health. So of course, you know, and we're gearing back, you know, my, our, our health center is fully open. We're, we're taking, we're ramping up again in April to another yeah. level. Um, I think right now about half of the door staff is inoculated. And Great. so, you know, it's like, it, it can't come fast enough, but like here again, like from a leadership perspective, it's not about slam the gas and just let everybody back in to sort of business as, as usual. It's not an, it, it's again a new normal and it's a pacing. Right. Yeah. To be really, really cognizant of what's going on and, you know, transmission rates and inoculation percentages, all that kind of stuff is really important. 100%. 100%. You guys have done a great job of paying attention to the science, I think, during this whole thing because there's yeah. so much other noise, just yeah. like a lot. Yeah. The stories that were coming out of the door during COVID were one of the things that made me happiest, I have to say. And in particular, the stories about what was happening with the legal services department. So as we all know, um, the previous administration was not really welcoming to immigrants. And a lot of laws became more difficult. A lot of legal structures became more difficult to work with. Um, But the team at the door really just didn't give up. Can you talk a little bit about the story that was profiled in the New Yorker? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there are a variety of different reasons why kids come to the door. Um, and um, of the fastest growing areas of the door is immigration. So Maya, before I say something specifically about that case, I mean, one thing to realize is that during COVID, it was the worst of what the federal government had become. On top of that, everything with, with that happened as a response to what happened to George Floyd was on top of it. So the populations that were in many ways felt the most assaulted by the federal government were at the door, then George Floyd. And so here you have a community that prides itself on being together, that's driven apart by the, by the pandemic at a time when they needed to be together the most. Right. So trying to create community was one of the things that was the most difficult thing to do while we were in the middle of this. Ironically, this morning I had a meeting with a woman who leads our legal services team, and already their rate of closing cases is going up. And that's Biden's been president for less than two months. That's been and so, really fantastic news. So what you saw, and you saw this in the New Yorker piece, is that between families that were detained and separated at the border, right. to cases that were stuck in immigration court, right. to basically a bureaucracy that was constructed by the Trump administration to make it impossible for us to realize outcomes, to get people legal to go to school, get benefits, all of it was exacerbated. I mean, we, one of the reasons why we sent out these notes to our community over and over again is that we needed people to understand that life doesn't stop under COVID. So we had lawyers riding their bicycles to get papers signed at their clients' houses just to keep the cases going. And, you know, the case that was in the New Yorker, um, and I'd be curious about your take, it's just, it's just an example of what we yeah. saw all the time. Yeah. Is that people are basically stripped of their dignity. Mm -hmm. had no access to legal outcomes that were actually being respected by the federal government. And we had, and had every case to be permanent or have some level of temporary status. And it got rejected all the time. And, you know, people don't flee their home country because everything's going swimmingly. You know, no. it's always in response to some sort of reduction in rights, economic hardship, fear of violence. And that's what we saw over and over again. And the fact yeah. that the New Yorker covered it was great. Um, and the lawyer who, who, who did that work and was representing a woman called Hannah Flam, um, she's amazing. And like that, but that's what we saw over and over again. So, you know, Maya, you asked me before, how, how did I sort of stay in it? I think it's because they did, right? Okay. You know, it's just like, I'm sitting on top of this organization that's remarkably unique even in New York standards, mm -hmm. and you have line staff who are fully committed and all in. And, you know, anytime I wanted to catch a breath, I basically didn't because I had 300 colleagues who were doing the same as me, busting their tush to just be there for our kids. And Hannah was a perfect example of that, just, just relentless and so smart. Well, you know what? That is fantastic. That is like the best news about this country that I've heard in a really long time. Yeah. There are 300 people point. in New York who would do anything to help at-risk kids at the most dangerous time in, you know, any in history that we can remember. 
yeah. anyone that's alive yeah. can remember um, right. at that time. So that is just, yeah, that's what I mean. I would have my moments of, oh, this is terrible, the pandemic, everyone. And then I would hear something about what was happening at the door. And I'd say, you know what? It's not over. Not over yet. There's yeah, that's so right. <laughs> that's right. I, yeah. You know what? I also think, you know, and I, I've been on an airplane once in a year. And part of it, I think, is also it's a New York thing. You know, I mean, we saw it after 9-11. Um, we've seen it in lots of cases in New York's history. New Yorkers were great. I mean, the rate of people being responsible vis-a-vis their mask was really high. Um, the philanthropy flowed right away. Um, the city of New York, say what you want about the current city hall, they didn't cut our contracts. Our big philanthropic partners didn't cut our contracts. In fact, they doubled down. I think New Yorkers, as they are known to do, they looked at it, this issue in the face and they just stepped up. Well, Eric, you have to you have to give yourself a little bit of credit because in the years previous to the pandemic that you have been at the door, yeah. your track record is pretty phenomenal and you've developed a lot of really strong relationships. And that's when it comes down to it, when there's a crisis, that's what really matters, right? I think that's then right. You have relationships with people and they think about you and you can get through to them. I think that's right. I may appreciate you saying that a lot, um, but I think it. But I think it's right. I mean, we made a lot of calls to people and said, this is what we need to keep going. And we got it. Yeah, you which know, is phenomenal. Like, I mean, and, and then just, you know, I mean, for an organization like ours to move a couple hundred pieces of technology to just pivot on a dime is hard. But we yeah. called our foundation person like, look, we need to keep these folks engaged. The only way we're going to serve them is with added technology, mm-hmm. you know, help us. And we just did right. it. And we just, you know, we bought Amazing. as much as we possibly could. One of those things that renews one's faith in humanity. I think that's right. And I think it also, and I hope this has legs, hopefully it reinforces for folks how complicated it is to be poor. And yeah. it's, what it's do you never, mean? What well, do you I just, mean? I mean, like the reason that I came to the door in the beginning is, is that the door is just such a unique place. It's this ecosystem that understands that people who, who are living at risk have a lot going on and it's complicated and it's never one thing. Right. You know, I, I remember in a previous job I, when I worked at Robinhood, I remember folks that were supporters of Robinhood would say things to me like, when I see somebody who's homeless in the subway, what do I do? And, you know, it's, it's a fair question, but, mm. the, but the answer is not an easy one. You know, and what I wanted to say is nobody's homeless in the subway because one thing happened. It's a confluence of things. In that case, it's usually probably pretty severe because if you're at the point where you're homeless in the subway, it means you're economically disconnected, you're disconnected from housing, probably from healthcare. There's probably something going on substance abuse-wise or mental health-wise. It's very complicated. Not every kid that comes to the door is in total dire straits, but we meet people where they are. And so I think it became clear how complicated it was to keep people safe during COVID when they were presumably isolated into less than ideal living conditions and moved away from these communities that were safe. You know, as much as we talk about these outcomes at the door where we got people meals and we got people birth control and we got people legal assistance. The other piece is that we provided a community and a home that was safe for kids to be able to be themselves. 
Is there kids who come to the door who actually do live in their, they do live in their homes. However, sometimes those home environments are not ideal and they really rely on being able to come to the door and do their art or see their friends, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or, yeah. or take a shower and do their laundry. Right. You know, and it, you know, it's yeah. like, it's just, it's a massive range. And yeah. I mean, my, you get what the door's about probably more than anyone, but it's just, we're not one thing, but we yeah. see such a range of kids who need different things. When and, people ask me what the door is yeah, yeah, and they really don't know anything about, about nonprofit, which, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. maybe nine or 10 years ago. Yeah. What I say is the door is like a really well-connected, really re well-resourced family that actually really wants to support you in doing whatever you want to do. And what's really funny is that a lot of my friends hear that and they're like, wow, man, I would have liked to go there. That's totally, it's totally. <laughs> when you have resources, you don't necessarily have it's that totally kind of true. support to reach your own goals. I mean, it's, so. it's, it's funny. My, my daughter goes to a public high school in New York and um, she tells me stories about her friends who go to the door and she generally doesn't say my dad works at the door, but you know, the, the door's open to anybody. And um it's for people who need what they need and you don't have to be one thing. Right. And that's what I think we do well, but it's also what makes us anomalous because there yeah. aren't a lot of places that look like us, but thank no. God for us. Thank God for you, man. No, it's really um, nice. So, so all this has gone on Yeah. and on and on. You get exhausted. The summer comes, the fall comes, it's continuing. And then one day you get a phone call. Dun, 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 dun. What happened? You know, the the door was for many years paired and affiliated with another not-for-profit. And over the course of four or five years, both not-for-profits, I think maybe with my help, came to understand that both should sort of blaze an independent pathway. So, you know, over the last five years, the door has been, I think, pretty successful. We've raised a lot of money. We've yeah. upped the number of kids we've served in five years from just about 8,000 to just about 11,000 now and sur are surviving a pandemic as best we can. And after a five-year run for me, I sort of thought that I had done a, a, a yeoman's job sort of leading the door and it was sort of getting to be time for me to hand it off to new leadership. And then I did get a call from uh, Steve and Alex Cohen and their family to think about leading philanthropy with them at the New York Mets, where they had just bought the New York Mets, Steve and Alex had just bought the New York Mets, and then also to help them think about new ways to invest their own philanthropy. Uh, and so the timing for me and my family was sort of hitting about right that I was ready for a new adventure. And I think the door had been through a big chapter and was ready for a new leader. And then the timing just was just uncanny. And so Steve and Alex are, are folks that I knew decently well from my Robin Hood days and had worked really closely with them. And so it was like, I wasn't looking for a job, but this sort of found me at the right time. And so at the end it's of March, yeah. Yeah, the end of March, I'm going to transition. And, and you know, the door's in the middle of interviewing some pretty spectacular candidates to lead the door. And um, so that's great because the door, of course, will attract a remarkable leader. And I will close five years feeling like at least I left it all on the table um, to do good. And so that, that feels pretty good. You definitely left it all on the table. You definitely guided us through a storm of a lifetime. And 
it is so great to see that someone who hung in there and gave it their all and didn't think about the next step, then is granted that by, I don't know, the universe. So that's pretty amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Are you, Thank are you. you a Mets fan? Now I am. <laughs> I grew up in, uh, in Baltimore and DC. So mm-hmm. my first love is the Baltimore Orioles, uh, which is okay. how I cut my teeth. But I, I moved to New York when I got out of college and never left. And I'm married to a Brooklyn girl who grew up a Mets fan. And so it's been a pretty easy transition. And so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a diehard. I'm a diehard Mets fan now. What does your son think about the Mets, Henry? I think he thinks it's. Um, I think it's. He thinks he's, he thinks it's really funny that Daddy is going to be able to continue to be a poverty fighter while working for a baseball team. Um, and I think it's kind of funny too. I mean, uh, my you know, you know me. I, I'm not a particularly fancy person, but I've been around a lot of pretty interesting New Yorkers who who are, who are affluent and, and have big hearts. And Steve and Alex are that they are um, very fortunate to have been great in business and they're incredibly generous, really smart people have done amazing things with their philanthropy now in a range of ways, arts, healthcare, education, veterans, they're incredible and I love them. And so I'm working for them and going to help them just continue to do good uh, in the name of the Mets and the Cohen Foundation. So that's a pretty cool cocktail to to chew my teeth on. And the, the Cohens are big supporters of the door. So now I'm a funder yes. of the door, which is sort of- That's amazing. Which it's is like full circle, full everything. Circle. Yeah. I started uh, at Robinhood as a funder right. of the door. <laughs> I came to work for the door and now I'm going to go back to funding yeah. the door. Yeah. That'll be awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much. I know you're super busy as always and getting ready for a new role and all that. And um, wish you nothing but success, which I'm sure you will continue to have. Thanks, Maya. Thank you all for joining the conversation today. Remember, stay present and share your story. Stories bring us together and together we all win. Stories from the Brink is produced by Billy Robinson, hosted by me, Maya Brown, music by Octopus Kid. Octopus Kid.